0: The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, April twenty sixth, 2020, on the basis of 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. About one week ago, over the course of three consecutive days, 224 football players got the call they had been waiting for. Each year, the NFL draft injects a a potent shot of hope into the arms of people who love football everywhere. There's, first of all, not only the hope that comes to fans as they see their favorite teams get just a little bit better, but then there's, of course, the hope that those players receive as they find out one by one that they're going to get their shot in the NFL. Of course, this year, the NFL draft took place the way that just about everything takes place in our world these days. It happened virtually, which means that the hope that came with knowing that they were going to get their shot in the NFL, that hope was delivered by way of a phone call. Of course, for just as many, if not more players, that phone call never came. They sat there looking at their phones, surrounded by their loved ones, All night, Thursday night, and then Friday, and then again Saturday, and yet that phone never rang. On the bright side, all of those players who weren't drafted can still sign as free agents with any one of the NFL's 32 teams. And in fact, I found out something very interesting last week, that right now in the NFL Hall of Fame, there are more players who were undrafted free agents than who were number one overall picks. So I guess you could say that even for those players who never got that long-awaited phone call, hope is still alive. That's been the focus of our worship throughout this season of Easter, that because Jesus is alive, hope is alive, and that is true even when hope seems to be dead. Hope often seems to be dead in our lives, and not because we haven't received that long-awaited phone call. In fact, that image of being called to be on Jesus' team or Jesus' side is very much a part of the imagery that is associated with this Sunday that we call Good Shepherd Sunday. Jesus is pictured as this good shepherd who has made us the sheep of his flock. And how does he do that? He does that by calling us. He uses his voice. We hear that voice and we listen and we follow. So very often hope seems as though it is dead in our lives, not because we haven't received that call, but because of what specifically we have been called to. You see, in order for hope to be alive in our lives, one of the things that we need, maybe more than just about any other, is we need for there to be justice. We need to know that whenever and wherever there are wrongs in our world, whenever there are people who are strong, who prey on and take advantage of those who are weak, whenever those who have power oppress those who have none, Wherever there is senseless violence or greed or corruption or fraud, then at some point, somehow, some way, those wrongs are going to be righted. In order for us to have hope, we need to know that the world in which we live is a world where there is justice. And yet today we're going to see that Jesus calls us to a world, Jesus calls us into a life where it often seems as though the opposite is the case. Where not only is injustice present, but injustice actually seems to be valued and prized and even celebrated. And so how in the world can hope remain alive in circumstances like that? Well, that's the question that we're going to ask and find an answer to as we look at these verses from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Verses that teach us that Jesus has called us to a life full of injustice. If you watch the NFL draft each year, you know that you, you often hear a lot about the characteristics of players that NFL teams value very highly. You hear about their height and their weight and their time in the 40-yard dash. If you're talking about quarterbacks, you might hear about the size of their hands or the score that they got on the Wonderlick test. Yes, that's actually a thing. Well, in these verses, Peter tells us about something that God himself values very highly in the life of his people. Peter says this, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So that's what God commends. That's what God prizes. And we need to pay very careful attention to what Peter says. The situation in question is one where someone is suffering unjustly. In other words, they didn't go looking for injustice, but injustice found them. Even though they didn't do anything wrong, they Are being punished. And in a situation like that, God doesn't ask us to ignore that injustice or deny it or pretend that it doesn't exist. In fact, in the situation in question, Peter really has in mind a a circumstance where a master is physically punishing unjustly one of his slaves. Now, people are often critical of what the Bible does and does not say about slavery. But realize that 400 years before Peter wrote these words, a Greek philosopher by the name of Aristotle, one of the most enlightened and influential thinkers who ever lived, actually made the argument that it is impossible for a slave to be treated unjustly. Why? Because that slave was nothing more than his master's property. And as property, the master really had the right to treat his slave however he wanted So it's truly a remarkable thing for Peter to introduce the idea that it's even possible for a slave to be treated unjustly. In a world where, no doubt, there were still a lot of people who considered slaves to be nothing more than property, Peter is acknowledging, God is acknowledging, that a slave is, in fact, a person. God doesn't ever ask us to ignore or deny that injustice exists. But when that injustice exists, Finds its way into our lives specifically. What does God want us to do? Again, He doesn't ask us to deny it or ignore it. He does ask us to endure it. Peter's choice of words there calls to mind the picture of a burden that is being placed on someone's shoulders. When injustice comes looking for us, when it finds its way into our lives and that burden lands on our shoulders, rather than immediately casting it off, rather than seeking revenge, rather than seeking retaliation, rather than seeking to lash out, God calls us to endure. He calls us to take that burden of injustice and carry it, to stand up under it. The ability to endure injustice, this is what God commends. This is what he values highly. So what might that look like in your life specifically? I'm guessing you're not going to find yourself in a situation anytime soon where you are someone else's slave. But you might find yourself in all kinds of situations that bring you into interaction with other people. For example, you might find yourself in a situation where you are someone else's spouse. And that spouse might be insensitive or self-centered or just downright cruel. You might find yourself in a situation where you are someone else's employee and your employer might blame you for something that was actually their fault. Your employer might not pay you the wage that you actually deserve. You might find yourself in a situation where you are someone's friend or their classmate or their teammate and that person might stab you in the back. That person might betray your trust. That person might tear you down so that they can lift themselves up. We don't have to live for very long for that burden of injustice to find its way onto our shoulders. So again, what does God ask us to do in those circumstances? He doesn't ask us to deny or ignore that injustice exists. He doesn't ask us to call it anything other than what it is. He doesn't ask us to stop believing that all of those wrongs ought to, in fact, be righted. But he does ask us to acknowledge that maybe we aren't the best ones to actually carry that out. He does ask us to acknowledge that carrying out perfect justice might be just a bit above our pay grade. You see, in order for a person to carry out perfect justice, that person, first of all, needs to have perfect knowledge of the circumstances. And, of course, so often we don't. So often we react or or we retaliate against someone based on what we assumed happened, only to find out that we jumped to conclusions incorrectly. In order for a person to carry out perfect justice, they also need to be impartial. And, again, so often we aren't we kick and scream that that we want life to be fair and that we want people to just get what they deserve. But, of course, the reality is that we very much want life to be unfair just to our advantage, and we want everyone to get what they deserve except, of course, us. It's no wonder Peter describes us the way that he does. Peter tells us that this is the life, this life of enduring injustice is the life to which we've been called. In other words, this isn't just some accidental or unintended part of being a Christian. This isn't like when a play goes all wrong on the football field and all the players just start improvising. No, this is actually the plan. This is the very thing to which Jesus has called us. It's right here in the playbook, and yet so often we call an audible. So often we do our own thing. As Peter says, so often we are like sheep who go astray. We follow our own plan. We, we run our own route. We get angry and we seek revenge. We retaliate against those who have wronged us and pay back people for what they have done. This ability to endure injustice is what God commends and God values highly, but so often we see it otherwise. So it's a good thing that there's a reason God values so highly this ability to endure injustice and, in fact, a reason that has a proven track record. If you watched the NFL draft this year, I'm guessing that one thing you didn't see was any team taking a player based on, for example, the color of their eyes or the shape of their nose or whether their teeth happened to be straight or crooked. No, NFL teams draft players based on characteristics that have a proven track record of being successful and beneficial on the football field. In fact, maybe you've even heard the NFL being described as a copycat league, that when one team finds something new or innovative that proves to be very successful, very quickly a lot of other teams are trying to do exactly the same thing. Well, in the very same way, when Jesus calls us to this life where we are called on to endure injustice, he is calling us to a life that already has a proven track record. Here's what Peter tells us. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what God calls us to do is exactly what Jesus has already done. Well, actually, Peter points out that Jesus has taken it one step even farther. Once again, God doesn't ask us to go looking for injustice. He says that when injustice finds us, we're simply called on to endure it. But Jesus took things one step further. Jesus actually sought out and embraced this injustice. He willingly took upon himself our sins and the punishment that went with them. Now, if we didn't know any better, we would probably think that that would make Jesus an utter fool. Why in the world would someone not just be willing to endure injustice, but actually embrace it? Why would he willingly take up the punishment that we deserve? Well, Peter tells us he did that for us. He took our sins so that we could be forgiven. He was wounded so that we could be healed. That was Jesus' plan. And not only was that Jesus' plan, but Easter is proof that Jesus' plan worked. When Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, as Peter says, he entrusted justice. He entrusted judgment to his Father in heaven. He entrusted the final verdict about him in his case to his Father in heaven. And when Jesus emerged alive from his tomb on Easter Sunday morning, that verdict was given for all the world to hear. On Easter Sunday, God gave the verdict about his son, the verdict not guilty. And that verdict given to Jesus is also a verdict given to all of us. We are, in fact, forgiven. We are, in fact, healed. Not only was injustice part of Jesus' plan, but Easter demonstrates that that plan worked. And that's why what has happened has, in fact, happened. Yes, as Peter points out, all of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Time and again, each of us has turned to our own way. And so what do you think would happen if Jesus, as our good shepherd, approached us in order to bring to us perfect justice, in order to give to us exactly what we deserve? What if, what would happen if he called us by saying, I know exactly what you have done. Now get over here right this minute because here is what I'm going to do in response. Would any sheep in their right mind listen to that voice, listen to that call? Of course not. We'd be running for the hills, deathly afraid of a shepherd like that. And yet because as our good shepherd, Jesus embraced the punishment that we deserve, he can now call to us, with a voice of unconditional love and full and complete forgiveness. And how do the sheep respond? Well, as Peter says, Now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A good shepherd who not only endured, but actually embraced injustice, embrace the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. This is the kind of shepherd to whom sheep are willing to entrust the care of their souls. And that perhaps gives us a little bit of an idea of why Jesus calls us to a life that looks very similar. There's been a a fair amount of discussion about what exactly is going to happen to Christian churches when this whole shutdown is over and Christian churches can once again open their doors. Will Christians who were regularly attending church before regularly and eagerly return to church again? Will people who weren't really attending church before suddenly start? I'm not sure exactly what is going to happen, but I do know this. People generally don't flock to church when they think of church as the place where they get scolded. People generally don't flock to church when they think of church as a place where a bunch of people who think that they're better than everybody else look down their noses at others. Yes, of course, all of us as sheep need to know and need to see how we have gone astray. But the voice that we need to hear the voice that we are willing to follow, the voice of the one to whom we are willing to entrust the care of our lives, is only the voice of the shepherd who not only endures, but even embraces injustice for us. The one who took our sins in his body. The one who was unjustly wounded so that we could be unjustly healed. And so when Jesus calls us, to a life that looks very similar, that's why. That as people see sheep of Jesus who are also willing to endure injustice, who are slow to get angry, who are quick to forgive, who refuse to hold grudges and refuse to retaliate when wronged, when people see and hear sheep in Jesus' flock who are like that, they are seeing a mirror image and they are hearing a perfect echo of the voice of the good shepherd himself. Yes, Jesus calls us to a path that is difficult to follow, one that is full of injustice, and yet Easter has already proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that this plan works. In fact, Peter indicates that in these verses. He indicates that when he says that Jesus has set an example for us. The, the picture behind that word example calls to mind a, a situation where a young child is just learning to write the letters of the alphabet for the very first time. I don't know about you, but out of all the classes that are now taking place in my home each day, hands down, handwriting is the one that is most difficult and most painful for all parties involved. But in that handwriting class, when children are learning how to write the letters of the alphabet, how does that work? At first, well, there's a, a pattern on the piece of paper. There's a perfect example set down of what that letter is supposed to look like. And in fact, the first couple times that the child writes the letter, they just take their pencil and they trace it over the pattern that already exists. They can see what the finished product is supposed to look like. Really, the, the idea is the same when Peter says that we are to follow in Jesus' footsteps. When you take your feet and you place them where someone else has already placed them, you can do so already being able to see where that path leads. And so, yes, as Jesus calls us to a life full of injustice, one where he asks us to endure injustice, he is setting down for us a very difficult pattern and a very difficult path. And yet it is a pattern where we can already see the final product, and it is a path where we can already see the final destination. And so friends, when, when that call comes, when that's the play that is sent in from the sidelines, when that burden of injustice finds its way onto your shoulders, go ahead and run it. Go ahead and carry it. Go ahead and stand up under it. Because Easter proves that even a life that is full of injustice is absolutely a life that is full of hope. Amen.